Father, uh, one man's words are recorded in Scripture when he says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. When we come to you as our Father, how good it is that you're never distracted. How good it is that you're not trying to juggle everything. How good it is that you're not stressed out. How good it is to know that you are not overwhelmed. Somehow, we have your undivided attention. Well, it's because you're God. You're not one of us. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. And then he goes on and says, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I shall live. Uh, when we open our hearts to you, you are not distracted. There are not other things on your mind. You don't give us half attention. You give us full and undivided attention. And the fact of the matter is, uh, you know what's on our hearts before we ever come to you. Uh, Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And the question we always come up with is, well, then why pray? If you know what we need before we ask, why should we bother to pray? And the answer to that is very simple. Prayer is not for you. Prayer is for us. Prayer is how we offload the stuff that wears us down. Uh, we all have weights, we all have pressures, we all have burdens. And we just can't keep carrying them around. We, we're not built to carry that much weight. So we bring them to you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are grateful that we not only have your undivided attention, but because we are in Christ Jesus and come to you in his name. No good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, we are not without sin, but we trust in Christ alone as our Savior. And when we come and confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we come and we come clean and we're honest with you, you forgive us and you remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. That is a marvel we will never get over. So we don't have to fear in terms of being terrorized that you are angry with us. The anger that you had towards us and our sin, you placed on Christ. He took your wrath. He, he took it and he paid for our sin in full. And as a result, we have your mercy and compassion. And your eye is upon us. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. So we come to you tonight 
with our stuff, with our concerns, with our pressures, with our tight places where we need an answer and we need help. And we come with confidence. And we're supposed to come with confidence. We're supposed to the, come to the throne of grace boldly with confidence so that we might receive grace and mercy for a well-timed help. Father, we are asking for grace. We're asking for mercy. We're asking for a well-timed help. We are thankful for all the ones we have received in the past, even the ones we received yesterday. But we need new mercy and new grace today. And when we get up in the morning, we're going to need a whole new supply. Thank you that you never turn off the tap. What an amazing thing. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim Challies has a website that I check usually on a daily basis, a lot of interesting links, book reviews. Um, in the Christian world, and then he keeps his eye out on other interesting things, and yeah, I just check his website, challies.com, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. Usually something fascinating there, uh, more often than not. This morning, he... Uh, had an article he posted called The Word of the Year. I'll quote from his article. Every year, Oxford dictionaries announce a word of the year. This is a word or expression that has attracted a great deal of interest that particular year. Throughout the year, the dictionary staff tracks words using all kinds of interesting means, and in November, they narrow in on a few for special consideration. A final selection team is made up of lexicographers and consultants to the dictionary team and the editorial marketing and publicity staff. This year, all of that effort led to this word, selfie, S-C-L-F-I-E. How many of you guys have never heard the word selfie? I never heard it, um, but a lot of you have. A selfie is a photograph of yourself taken with a mobile phone or other handheld device and uploaded to social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or any of the others. Okay, it's a new world, isn't it? Some of you guys still have eight-track cartridges in your truck. Yeah, and some of you don't even know what an eight-track cartridge is. You got the phone at home in the kitchen with this thing, like they used to have on Lassie? Okay, well, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're breathing, if, if that's your life. The dictionary team found that the word was first used, the word selfie, this is kind of interesting. The word selfie was first used in 2002 by an inebriated Australian. And then they quote the, they quote the text which I'm not going to read because the guy was drunk. Uh, and then it goes on and says, it has been in use ever since, the word selfie. However, in 2013, the word reached a kind of tipping point in popularity when both individuals and media began to refer to it with increased regularity and decreased shame. 
Over the year, the usage of the word selfie increased by 17,000%. You see, and then he goes on and explains this whole digital world and uh, the social media. A selfie is someone that will take pictures and basically tries to manage and devise and control and be sovereign over uh, a projection of themselves for the world to see. But it's all centered around themselves. They're selfies. Our word in this study for this uh, series has not been selfie. Uh, We've had one word that we've been studying for 11 weeks. Anybody know the word? Manna. Manna is a well-timed provision for us from God. When you talk about manna, your focus is not on you. It's on what God has done. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Manna was the supernatural provision of food for the people of Israel during a 40-year period of time when they came out of slavery in Egypt and before they went into the promised land beginning in the book of Joshua. Every morning they would go out, and again, if you've been here, this is old hat to you now, but two million people, how do you feed two million people? They weren't in the city, they weren't in the suburbs. They didn't go by Costco's once a week. They were in the wilderness, deep in the wilderness. All supply lines were cut off. How do you feed two million people every day for 40 years without missing? God sent manna. They would go out in the morning. It would be a dew-like substance on the ground. It had a wafer-like consistency, coriander seed, tasted like honey, kind of a waferish kind of thing. Exodus 16, you could bake it, you could boil it, you could grind it. This was their provision. And every day they would collect manna for each member of their family. Uh, They couldn't store it because it would go bad. So when everyone went to bed that night, you were out. You were completely out. There were no leftovers. You were out. And if God did not come through and supply it again the next day, you were in trouble. But he never missed. On the sixth day, he would give you twice the amount that you needed because on the seventh day, it was the Sabbath, and there would be no manna. Why would there be no manna? Because he was going to withhold it because it was the Sabbath day. So on the sixth day, you'd collect enough for two days, and it wouldn't go bad. It was a supernatural, well-timed provision of God. There are lessons for us to be learned from this uh, wilderness wandering of 40 years in God's provision of manna. And as we have said, what the Lord does is that he provides, manna was, um, was a provision. Manna was a providence. Uh, the devil is not in the details of our lives. God is in the details of our lives. And as we have mentioned, when Jesus said that he was the bread of life, he meant that he is our provision for every area of our lives. He is the Lord of life. 
He created life. He invented life. In him is life. He gave us life. He sustains our lives. Um, we need him. We can't live without his provision. We can't live without his providence. Access, you can't breathe without him. Breathing, I don't know if you've thought about this. Breathing uh, is underappreciated. <laughs> Until you can't quite catch your breath. You ever had the wonderful experience of having the wind knocked out of you? Just a little moment of panic. Because you can't get your breath, and you need that breath. And suddenly you're very, very appreciative and aware of the importance of breath in your life. But without him, you can't breathe, Acts 17. In him, we live and move and breathe. Some of you have lost your breath. Someone called the paramedics and they got there in time and they got you breathing again. Well, then you would appreciate Psalm 68, to the Lord belongs, escapes from death. You can't live without him. 1 Corinthians 10 <clears throat> tells us that there are lessons to be learned from the 40-year wandering in the wilderness that God had the Israelites involved in and his provision and his manna. One of the lessons to be learned is that those Israelites themselves never learned the lessons. They didn't learn them. Do you know there are two kinds of role models? Uh, we all want positive role models. We hear a lot about the benefit of being around a positive role model, and that's true because you can learn a lot from a positive role model. But it is also true that you can learn a heck of a lot from a lousy role model. Is that not true? You've had a good boss probably in your lifetime. You've probably had a bad boss. If you're teachable, you can learn from both of them. Maybe um, you had a father who did not um, care for you and take care of you and provide for your family. Um, that's a hard thing to deal with. That creates a deep wound. That has a lot of uh, accompanying scars. But you are not doomed to repeat the mistakes of your father. In fact, when Christ comes into our lives, if we're teachable, you say, well, I didn't have a role model. Actually, you did, and you just do the opposite of what he did. If he neglected your mother, you don't neglect your wife. If he neglected you, you don't neglect your kids. If he couldn't control his liquor, you control it. In other words, you can learn as much from a, from a negative role model as you can from a positive. I'll grant you it's easier to learn from a positive, but you can learn from a negative. The people of Israel were a negative role model, and we can learn a ton of lessons from them. That's basically what's going on in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a history lesson, and I'd like you to turn there with me tonight. Um, 
Because in Psalm 78, there are some principles and there are some lessons that we are to learn from the history of Israel. And not only are we to learn them, but we are to pass them on to our children. And if you have grandchildren, you're to pass them on to your grandchildren. Um, as we go to um, Psalm 78, and I love doing this, but some people it drives nuts. Um, let's go somewhere else on the way to <laughs> Psalm 78. So put your finger in Psalm 78 and go to Deuteronomy 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 6, what you've got going on is a word of instruction to fathers. How many of you guys are fathers? Let me see your hands, please. We've got a lot of fathers in here. How many of you guys are grandfathers? All right. I'm so glad you can get your arm up. <laughs> Most of us have rotator cuff issues by the time you're a grandpa. Um, um, let's see. So we have fathers, grandfathers. I don't believe any. How many of you guys are sons? <laughs> okay, good. We didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We didn't want anybody to take a hit on your self-esteem. We're, we're very inclusive here tonight. Okay, we're glad you're here too. Um, Deuteronomy, a little cynicism there. Um, Deuteronomy 6. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me, Moses, to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess. This is, uh, they're, they're eventually going to get into the promised land, okay? Now watch this. So he's got, he's got certain things that are very, very important that are critical, that they, that they learn. You read that again. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. Now watch this. So that you might do them. You might actually do them. You might actually obey them, and you might actually put them into practice. It's kind of a novel idea. Isn't this what you want with your kids? We want to teach our kids, and then there is great joy in our lives when our kids actually hear us, and then when they actually do what we ask them to do. That's a wonderful thing. Um, it's a process. It doesn't all happen overnight, as you know. This is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them, that you might do them, in the land where you are going over to possess, so that you and your son, watch this, and your grandson, might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Now, all the men that he was writing to, a lot of them uh, had sons, but they didn't have grandsons yet. You see, a lot of times we think as men that our responsibility, and you would be right about this, you know, my responsibility is to oversee and care and provide 
for my family, for my immediate family, for my kids. And a lot of times we think, you know, my, my boys become men, my, my daughters become women. Okay, I've done my job. Actually, you're still a parent. It's different. And when they're 35, obviously we shouldn't be treating them as though they were 15. But you're still a father. And I think the idea here is, the idea here is that what we teach and how we conduct our own lives has a greater impact than most of us realize because you see, what is happening is that by your words and by your behavior, you are instructing your children, but you're actually instructing your children so that they can raise their children, you see. And, and, and every guy in here who's a father right now is thinking about, oh gosh, I should have done this and I should have done this and I should have done this. We always think about what we didn't do. That's just because we're aware of that. Nobody, nobody hits a thousand as a father, you see. Nobody. The Heavenly Father. Nobody else comes close. So we've all made a lot of mistakes. Hopefully what's happening is, as, as we go through life, we're growing. We're teachable. We're honest. If we hurt somebody, we go and talk to them in our family. We ask forgiveness. We don't let wounds foul and fester. And if you have, go take care of it. Don't let it get worse. And as we mature, and some of us don't really come to our senses till a little later in life, well, what, we're, what we want to do is that we want what we say we believe and what we, and the way that we are living, we want that to, to come into, uh, we want it to synchronize. You see? We want, there to, we want to be developing a consistency. And this doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and here's the thing with, with kids. You don't have to be perfect. But you have to be honest. And if you have an atmosphere in, of your home of grace, and mercy, and appropriate discipline, and respect. Uh, if you're man enough that when you mess up, you admit it, everything's going to be fine. You know that? Just as we receive grace, so we dispense grace. Every, every man has a family. Every, every home has an atmosphere. An atmosphere. Um, Restaurants have atmosphere. Every once in a while on a special occasion, uh, you know, an anniversary or something, um, wives want to go to a, a restaurant, not only with good food, but with atmosphere. Or ambiance. I looked that word up. It means expensive. <laughs> now, guys, we don't care. We don't really care much about ambiance. Now, we want food. We want good food. But you'll go eat at some dive somewhere. But on a special occasion, you'll take your wife to a place not only with good food, but with atmosphere. And you're going to pay out the nose for that atmosphere. Right? You know, it's interesting. Every home has an atmosphere. 
and the Father sets the atmosphere. The home in which you were raised was either had a, the home in which you were raised either had an atmosphere of construction or destruction. In other words, your father, you say, well, my father wasn't there. Well, then that was destructive, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, because he should have been there. Now, unless, you know, it's interesting. Before we had all these medical breakthroughs of the last century, a lot of times fathers would die and they'd die early. It's actually easier for a child who loses a father by death than it is for, than a, for a child who loses a father by abandonment. Because with death, they can get closure. Now, the great thing about Christ is that he can take an irresponsible father and turn him around. And the guy's not dead, he's alive, and now he's really alive in Christ. And the years which the locusts have eaten can be restored. Am I making any sense? So all those wasted years, maybe where you had a destructive atmosphere, that you say, well, I didn't abandon my kids. Well, I'm sure you didn't. But sometimes we're so distracted. Or sometimes we're just trying to pull off life and pay for everything. And we, you know, in other words, we're not all there. See, sometimes the atmosphere set by a father is destructive. That might have been how you were raised. But if you had a father that was in tune and... Uh, honed in with you and your mom, and uh, what a wonderful thing that is. See, that's a constructive atmosphere. Uh, Israel had the perfect father, but the nation as a whole had an atmosphere that was destructive. You know why? They wouldn't listen to the father, and they wouldn't respond to the father. How a man lives his life has a tremendous impact. Uh, every, every, every family is a small civilization. Israel was a small nation and a small civilization. And how we as men live our lives in terms of following the Lord has a great impact on those around us that we love. Um, Psalm 78. And see, as a man, as we go through life, well, here's what's happening. We follow the Lord and we're learning lessons. Can I say this to you? Stay teachable and learn the lessons. You don't get them overnight, but stay teachable. Learn the lessons. Learn the lessons because if, if you do what Deuteronomy 6 says, that if you listen to the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you and that you do them in the land, there's going to be favor in your home. And it won't just accrue to you and to your kids, but it'll, it'll go to the next generation. And we're going to see that in Psalm 78. So now let's get to Psalm 78. Do you see the connection there? I didn't hear anybody say yes, so I'm assuming that you didn't see it, but I had a great time over there. Uh, Psalm 78 is a history. Uh, and it's a very long psalm. Before we read it, let me give you something from Michael Wilcock. He says, Psalm 78 leads us through five centuries of Israel's history, from the time of Moses to that of David. But it is not a steady march through nine books of the Bible from Exodus to 2 Samuel. It lingers at some points and bypasses others. So it's, it's an interestingly crafted psalm. Uh, 
has 72 verses. Uh, let's, let's read the opening verses. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. Watch this. And our fathers have told us. Now, now watch this. See, they were given certain things. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous work that he has done. So we have seen God work. We have learned about his character and about his power and about his glory and his wisdom. Those things we have a responsibility now to convey to the generation coming up. Verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, watch this, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born. Anybody in here have a wife who's pregnant? Anybody in here have a daughter who's pregnant or a daughter-in-law who's pregnant? That little baby that's being formed in that womb, there is a responsibility that you teach that little baby the truth of the living God. That's our job. It's not the pastor's job. It's not you drop them off just for someone else. You're going to teach that kid whether you realize it or not, by your life, by your words, by your example. Okay. That they should teach them to their children, verse 6, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born. Now watch this. That they may arise. Who? The kids yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their kids. That's kind of wild. that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now, this is precisely what the people of Israel did not do for 40 years. Verse 8, And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then you get up to nine, the sons of Ephraim. Um, you get in the 13. You, you get in the 12, and he starts doing the history. Uh, they're in Egypt. Look at 13. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. That's Exodus 14. He made the water stand up like a heap. He led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. That's the wilderness. We've, we studied that. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. That's the rock at Horeb. He brought forth streams also from the rock, caused waters to run down like rivers, yet they continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out. That was a second occurrence after the manna. And the streams were overflowing. And then they're asking, can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? The Lord heard and was full of wrath. Why? 
22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation, yet he commanded the clouds above and he opened the doors of heaven. He rained down the manna upon them to eat and he gave them food from heaven. But you see, they refused to submit. They refused to rebel. They refused to learn the lessons. They have refused to apply it to their life. Remarkable, is it not? Not only did they not learn them, they did not pass them on to their kids so that their kids could learn them and equip their kids so that their kids could trust in the living God as they walk through the challenges of life. Uh, 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful work. 37, their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. This is tragic. Absolutely tragic. 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt. All those miraculous signs, the ten displays of his power in sending the plagues. Did they remember it? Did they appreciate it? Did they give him glory and honor? No. And then it goes through and it enumerates everything that he did. But you know what's amazing about the Lord? God was gracious to them all the way along because, you see, he is abundant in loving kindness. Sometimes we uh, look at our lives and we look at our failures and we look at our sin. And, um, uh, you know, we all have weaknesses. We have great weaknesses. And some of us are more prone to some sins than others. And some of us, we just can't get a handle. We, we're always, we, it, we struggle deeply. And sometimes when we sin and we say to ourselves, I'm never going to do that again, and then when you do it again, you say to yourself, I can't go to the Lord. I'm too ashamed. I'm too embarrassed. You know what? You can go to him. You can go to him. Look at <laughs> You can go to him at any time. You cannot out the grace of God. You can't do it. 52. In spite of all this nonsense, he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. God was merciful. He was gracious. He was kind. Psalm 103, when we come to him, he takes our sin and removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. What a remarkable God. I've, I've mentioned to you several times the statement that John Newton would make all of his life. Newton, who was a, a, the captain of a slave ship, um, was a blasphemer. Other sailors didn't want to work near him. They were afraid he'd be struck by God. That's something for a sailor not to want to work with another sailor who's, who's profane. That kind of runs in the blood of sailors. But Newton was just a notch, not above, but below. Uh, when he was a captain, I mean, he would sexually assault women. 
he, was, he was horrific. He's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. He never got over the fact that God saved him. And all the way through his life, after he was converted, actually became a pastor, became a very influential Christian leader in England, actually was the mentor to William Wilberforce, who was the man in Parliament who defeated slavery in the British Empire. Newton, all of his life, would say this, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Jesus is greater than my sin. That's the gospel, you see. There's a lot more in Psalm 78. And um, I'm going to stop there. But the point is this, of Psalm 78. The people of Israel did not learn the lessons. And the people of Israel did not pass on the lessons. However, there is a responsibility. Now, they're dead and they're gone. But we're alive and we're walking this earth. Uh, we have a responsibility to learn the lessons, to give God glory for what he has done, and we have a responsibility to fulfill Psalm 78 and to teach the lessons to our children and to our grandchildren, to the generation yet to come, so that they may raise up and teach them to their kids. And here's the great thing. You say, oh, Steve, I've just recently come back to the Lord. Great. Yeah, but all those years. Forget those years. Forget those years. Don't get hung up and looking at your past. Look at Christ. Don't get hung up about, oh, I did this and this and this. Okay, you did. But Christ has entered into your life. Follow him. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind. I press forward. Don't get caught up in regret. Don't get your focus there. Get your focus on Christ. Um, McChain used to say, that for every look you take to yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Do you ever find yourself just in the middle of something, you'll think of something you did that you wished you had never done? Does it ever happen to you? And you just kind of shake your head? Mary asked me the other day, she said, why are you shaking your head? And I didn't want to tell her. Because <laughs> I was ashamed. I was thinking of something I'd done years ago. It just popped into my head. And I told her something that wasn't true. <laughs> I did. And I, now I got to go home and tell her. <laughs> but I did. I told her something that wasn't true because I'm still kind of ashamed of it. But how do you handle that? Well, man, we could be wrapped up all day long taking looks at ourselves and how we screwed up. McChain said, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. All right, here's what I want to do. I want to step back. We've done this study on manna. Psalm 78 is looking at the history of Israel, including the time of the manna, the 40 years. All right, I want to take a step back, and I want to give you some lessons that... That, that I have taken from this semester of teaching. Uh, some of them I have, you've heard before, some of them you haven't heard. But these are the takeaways. 
And not only are they takeaways for us to ponder and to put into practice, but they are takeaways, they are lessons for us to teach to those in our care and in our charge at appropriate times. You know? That's our job. You say, well, how am I supposed to teach the lessons? Well, I suggest what you do is, uh, is that if you still have kids at home or at Thanksgiving, if everyone's come over to the house, I suggest you get everybody up, everybody up about 4.30, uh, get your Bibles, and you begin to teach them the Book of Romans. They're going to love it. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us how we're to teach our kids. Why don't you go back to Deuteronomy 6? Because this is a practical question. Well, how do you do this? In that same passage, God gives instructions to the, men's, to the men on how they are to teach, and they are to teach. So we stopped off at verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Just as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now watch this. Here's some tips. Here's some real basic tips on fathering. Um, yeah, I'm not even sure how to father because, I mean, I, I really didn't have much of a role model. Okay. Uh, here's the first principle. Fathers are to love God deeply. Fathers are to love God deeply. I take that from verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with 80% of your heart, 60% of your soul, 30% of your might. It's not what it says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. You know how I, you know how I translate that? Get all in with Jesus. Just get in. Get in the boat. Quit screwing around. Don't have one foot in and one foot out. That confuses kids. If you talk one thing and live another, you're going you're gonna to confuse them. I'll never forget being at a Dallas Stars game. And my neighbor, uh, Rick Wilson, was the defensive coach for a long time, and he had a significant ministry in my life. He was always giving me free tickets. <laughs> and uh, so I'm at a Stars game one night, and I had... John or Josh with me, I can't remember, but it was coming to the end of the first period and I had any dinner. So I'm going up, they had a kiosk with frozen yogurt, and I'm making a beeline for that kiosk. And as I'm headed to get the frozen yogurt, there's a guy at the concession stand and he turns, and I, I know this guy, been in the Bible study with him, uh, knew his family, and he's heading, I'm going to intersect with him, and he's not, he's not looking at me, he's putting change, and he's got a dark bottle, and he's holding it and trying to get change in his pocket. 
And I'm about to run into him, and I said, I'll call him Fred. That's not his name. And I go, hey, Fred, how you doing? And he looked at me, and he went, oh. And then he, he went like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a long neck bottle of beer. Now, I don't give a rip if he drinks beer. I've never talked to him about beer. But for some reason, that was his knee-jerk reaction. He hit it. And he kind of looked like an idiot, to tell you the truth. He goes, hey, how you doing? Well, I'm really good. How are you doing? Good to see you, man. He's very nervous. Now, I'd never talked with him about alcohol. I mean, but he was nervous. And I could tell he was nervous, so I didn't talk with him real long. Because his arm was starting to cramp on him, just (laughs) holding it in this position. So I, hey, you know, good to see you. Take care. You know, okay. Wasn't real long. But he was nervous. And he was uncomfortable. Now, I had never had a conversation with that guy about alcohol. You know why he was so uncomfortable? Not because of my conviction about alcohol. He doesn't even know what my conviction is. You know why he was, you know why he was so nervous and uncomfortable? Because of his conviction. He was violating his own conviction. That's why he was doing this. Now, if you do that consistently, you say one thing and you do another, you're going to confuse your kids. Right? They're going to think you're a member of Congress. (laughs) I was going to say edit that, but keep it in. What the heck? They're listening anyway. It doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, you're going to have health care, but we're not. See, I'm feeling better already. That's lousy leadership, is it not? That's terrible leadership. Okay. Get all in with the Lord. All in, okay? Say, aren't you going to talk more about alcohol? No. You, you go, you figure it out. Drunkenness is a sin. Okay? Go read uh, Romans um, 14. You figure it out. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay? I'm going to leave it there. Uh, these words which I am commanding you, verse 6, shall be on your heart. Now watch this. How am I to teach my kids? How am I, these lessons that these people didn't learn, I want to learn lessons. But how do I teach my kids? Do I get them up at 4.30 in the morning, teach them Greek and Hebrew, and we run this thing like a seminary? No. Watch, I love this. God is so practical. He's so real. Verse 6, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. See, I love that. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You guys ever sit in your house? You look like you're good at that. (laughs) I like sitting in my house. I like watching uh, sports. I mean, our... My, my kids are growing up. We watched a lot of sports. We'd sit in the house and watch it. For a long time, I may have told you this, uh, I, uh, I, I, there was something I'd spend money on when my kids got older 
and, uh, and had their own places. Uh, I would get the DirecTV uh, pro football pack. I get every pro football game in America. I pay extra for that. It's worth it to me. I get every college game that's on satellite. You can buy those two packages. I buy them. Because here's what would happen. I get a call. Maybe Josh would call me. Hey, hey Dad. Yeah. He said, hey, did you know that Slippery Rock is playing Michigan Islamic? <laughs> and I'd say, no, I didn't know that. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the Division uh, 17 uh, National Channel. I didn't even know there was a Division 17. He said, but it's on Saturday. Do you get it? I said, if it's on, I get everything. <laughs> hey, can I come up? Yeah, come on up. Can I bring uh, uh, Cleve with me? Can I bring John? Can I bring uh, Saddam Hussein? Can I bring, can I bring, uh, I said, I don't care who you bring. Just come on up. You know why? Because I want to be with. I want to be with. And so they come up and we'll watch the game. Now, do we break open our Bibles at halftime and turn to Romans 9? No. We're just watching the game. But it's interesting when you're with, oftentimes when you're with, stuff will come up. Issues will come up. See, the key word in fathering is with. And if you're never with, you're never going to be able to teach the lessons. So you can't spend all of your time doing something else. You can't do it. The model for fathering and teaching lessons was Jesus with the 12. Jesus was always with. If Jesus went to Capernaum, they went with him. If he went to Jerusalem, they went with him. If he went across the Sea of Galilee, they went with him. And they were always asking him stupid questions. Just like little kids do. Right? And he never treated them like they were stupid. What did he do? He listened, and he'd teach them lessons. But in order to teach, you got to be with. you got to be with. And if you're a father, and you've got kids, you've only you got a lot on your plate. You've only got X amount of discretionary time in your life. Use that wisely. Use that discretionary time very, very wisely. As much as you can, be with. Be with. Because when you're with, things are going to come up and life is going to happen. As you, how do you teach? As you're just walking through life. As you're sitting in your house watching a game. And a commercial comes on and it's so, some weird thing. And man, can you believe that? And, da, da, da. and all of a sudden you're in a conversation. And then they might ask you a question. And then all of a sudden you're into something and you're able to convey the truth that you've learned. And you say, guys, you know, I had to learn this the hard way. And they're all ears. I mean, they're watching you and they're listening and you got them. But see, you never know when the teachable moment is going to show up. So as much as we can, you want to be with. Okay. Do they pop up every 10 minutes? No, you know they don't. You know they don't. Uh, Samuel Olsherson said, the curse of fatherhood is distance. And the good fathers spend their lives trying to overcome it. And, and don't get on a big guilt trip here. Just be aware of it. Just be aware, that's all. Just be aware. See here, this, this is a tremendous method. And see, we're talking about learning the lessons and then teaching the lessons. Okay, how do I do that? Just walk through life with them. Just kind of walk through life. 
And as they get older, it changes, but you still are the dad, and you want to be connected. You don't want to be a controller. You just you want to be there to assist and advise, and you get it, don't you? Let me pull out some lessons from this man of stuff that we need to learn and that we can pass on. Does this make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? And again, some of these you've heard and some of these you haven't heard. I've tried to make them kind of pithy, short, concise. To me, one of the key lessons out of this whole manna thing is he cares and he carries. You've heard me say that before. He cares and he carries. At some point, you're going to find yourself in a wilderness. You're going to find yourself in a tough stretch of highway you're going to find yourself where your supply lines are cut off, and you're going to start asking questions. Why is this happening to me? I'm trying to follow the Lord. Okay? Well, don't forget this. He cares, and he will carry. Uh, flip over, if you would, to Psalm 55. You can also find this over in First in Peter, but let's go to Psalm 55. 22, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He'll take care of you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Now, I've mentioned I love the New American Standard Bible because in the margin it will often give rough-hewn translations that really give the guts, you know, the gut of what this thing is trying to come across with. Listen to this, New American Standard Bible margin out of... Uh, Psalm 55, 22. Cast what he has given you upon him. I love that. I love that. Because ultimately, you're saying, wait a minute, I'm talking, Steve, I'm talking about having adversity. Well, where does your adversity come from? Ultimately, it comes from the Lord. And I know we're in spiritual battle, and I know all that stuff, but ultimately, it comes from the Lord. Um, Ecclesiastes 7 what is it, verses 19 to 20? Consider the work of God, who can straighten what he has bent in the day of prosperity. Be glad, be happy. That's easy to do. But in the day of adversity, consider, watch this, for God has made the one as well as the other. Prosperity and adversity ultimately come from the hand of God. And oftentimes when we hit it, we think he doesn't care. He does care. Don't you let your kids... So sometimes you let your kids, they want to go a certain way and you try to instruct, but sometimes it's, okay, you go ahead. Because you see, there, is, there are lessons to be learned in adversity that you don't learn in prosperity. Now here's the deal. You care, but you're allowing them to experience some difficulty because you know that some good can come out of that. This says, cast what he has given you upon him. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. Peter says, casting all our care upon him because he cares for you. He does care. He sent his son to die. Romans 8, 32. He who gave up his own son for us, how he will, will he not freely give us all things? He sacrificed his son on your behalf and on my behalf. He cares. He cares. He cares about what you're dealing with. He cares about the issue. He cares deeply for you. He cares, and not only does he care, but he will carry you. 
Deuteronomy 1, as you're in the wilderness and dealing with the adversity, and there are times you get fatigued and you get overwhelmed and you run out of gas and you run out of resources and all your supply lines are cut off, Deuteronomy 1, he says, I carried you as a father carries a little boy. He will pick us up and carry us through stretches where we don't have the strength to make it on our own and we want to, don't want to admit it, but sometimes you're going to hit a stretch like that. Isaiah 46, verse 3. This is a gold-plated promise, especially in times like we're living in where everything is turned up down. We're living in an age of insanity. We take what is good and we call it bad. We take what is bad and we call it good. It's completely irrational uh, on every level of life. Uh, you used to be able to plan and make a financial plan. Everything's, everything's up for grabs right now. You know, you, you put some money away and save. What kind of interest are you drawing on that? Interest? The only one who has, you're the only one who's interested. That's about the only interest you're going to get. Why? Because there's this convoluted thing that runs antithetical to biblical principles that this economy is being operated on. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Jesus is Lord of everything, including economics. As Kuiper says, Jesus says over every square inch of life, mine. He's sovereign. Okay. And so you start looking around and go, oh my gosh, how the heck am I going to make it and live and you know, exist? And I look, you know, my premium's going up. Oh, this is, I mean, it's a little bit convoluted. <sighs> he cares. And he carries. Look at Isaiah 46.3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth. He gave you life. He sustained your life. Don't ever forget that. He will keep you alive until you are promoted to eternity due to the fact that Christ has given you eternal life. He has given you life. He has given you physical life. He has given you eternal life. Uh, you have been born by me from birth, watch this, and have been carried from the womb. Yeah, well, yeah that's true. He's been, but man, I'm really worried. Things are just crazy. Okay, even to your old age, I will be the same. Well, what if I face a death panel? Well, face them. But they will not decide your future. He will, and he controls them. Because he controls all things. Psalm 119.91, all things are thy servant. All things, all people. Even to your old age, I will be the same. The economy, the administration, the party in charge, it all changed. Yeah, but I'll be the same. So you don't need to worry. I got your back. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will, here it is, carry you. That's future. And I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Okay, there you go. Go get some sleep. <laughs> right? Gold-plated, ironclad promise. Yeah, well, how's it going to work out? You don't need to know that. Why do you care how it's going to work out? Just go get some sleep. Go eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> Chill out, man. And I was preaching this to myself on Monday as I was struggling with anxiety and saying, you're an idiot. 
than I am. Why am I struggling when I know this? Because we're, we're still flawed men. But this is the truth. He cares and he carries. Let me give you another one. He acts and he accomplishes. So what does that mean? Well, your life, your existence on the earth, Psalm 57. He will act on your behalf and he will accomplish what needs to be done in your life. Psalm 57, verses 2 and 3. No, I'm in Isaiah. No wonder that's not familiar. <laughs> Hold on. Psalm 57, 2. I will cry to God most high. Watch this. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. Compare that with Psalm 138, verses 7 through 8. I just picked up 8. Psalm 138, 8. Watch this. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. There you go. He acts and he accomplishes. He's going to get done what needs to be done in your life. It's going to happen and he's going to take care of it. Yeah, well, I don't know how. I mean, I, you don't need to know how. Why do you need to know how? You don't need to know the detail. He's got you covered. This is the truth. He's your father. He's for you. He's on your team. Psalm 56, 9. This I know that God is for me. We're running around thinking he's against us. The stuff he had against us, he put on Jesus, and Jesus has already paid for. Now, if you're a Christian and you're, and you're disobedient, he's going to pull out his belt and give you a couple of whacks on the, on the um, what do you call that? Gluteus Maximus. He's going to whip your butt a little bit. That's in Hebrews 12. It's in the Greek. Not to abuse you, but to discipline you. If you've never been disciplined, you're not a son of God. For every son he receives, he disciplines. And to those who have been trained by it, to those who learn the lessons, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see? Well, you're still his kid. He didn't say, oh, for our sin again, I'm going to take him over to the orphanage and drop him off. He didn't say that. I'm in the family. So are you. Yeah, but I really struggle with sin, Steve. Oh, you're in Romans 7. Get out of Romans 7. Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ. Yeah, but I really messed up. Well, read the end of Romans 8, because nothing can separate you from the love of God. Oh, and don't miss the middle, because the whole reason nothing can separate you and there's no condemnation is that you've been judicially, legally adopted in the middle of Romans 8, and you're in the family. See, he acts and he accomplishes forgiveness. This is called theology. It's the greatest stuff in the world. It's the study of God. 
Here's another one. He tests and he teaches. So why am I going through the wilderness? Why am I going through it? He's testing you. Uh, James 1, verse 3. Count it joy. Think it is joy. When you encounter various trials, watch this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do you become a strong, mature man? Here's what happens. He'll take you through a hard situation, and your faith is being tested. And you say, I'm not sure God can get me out of this and all this. And you cry out to God, and, and you're, there's no way out. And then he gives you a way out, and he delivers you. So what happens when God does something like that? Well, you, you know what? You've seen him deliver you, and so that should make your faith a little stronger. And then the next time, and the next time, and the next time, and as you uh, go through life, and as you get older, what happens is your faith muscle gets stronger because you've got a whole history of seeing God be faithful to you. Walking by faith is not looking at your faith. Walking by faith is looking at his faithfulness to you. Walking by faith is believing that he will be faithful. That's walking by faith. Count it joy, think it is joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do you get endurance? By going through hard things and seeing him deliver you. That's how you become mature. No pain, no gain. This is the value of suffering and adversity. He tests and then you learn. See, they never learned the lessons. They were tested, but they failed. They never learned the lessons. They never taught the lessons of their kids. By the way, don't be afraid to share your struggles and your failures with your kids. It'll draw them to you. Now, depending on their age and their emotional maturity, you've got to use judgment here. Ray Stedman blew me away. Chuck told me this one time. We had a conversation about it, That Ray Stedman, Chuck, who is much older than I am, <laughs> although he doesn't look it, uh, Chuck's, I think, 15 years older than I am. He was an intern under Ray Stedman at Peninsula Bible Church in California. And when I was in college, I started going to church there. And Ray Stedman was so honest. He was so transparent. And Chuck and I talked one time about that blew me away and it blew him away. How can you be that honest with people? And you know what happened? I remember the first time he told a story about, I think he was on the beach in Hawaii, and he was with Ron Ritchie, and R Ritchie actually had to get up and leave the beach and fly home early. He couldn't handle those chicks walking by. He just couldn't do it. They'd been in the Philippines for two weeks. He, had, he told Ray, he said, I'm getting an early flight. I got to get out of here. And he told that publicly. I was shocked that he would tell it. Not that he struggled, that he would be honest and admit it. I'd never heard a pastor do that before. Well, you can't do that. You'll lose your job. No, actually, you know what? Uh, every guy in that room was suddenly pulled to him because every guy in that room could relate to that. Only we didn't leave early. <laughs> Most of us couldn't pay the change fee. They didn't have them back then. Well, I'm out of time, so I'm going to give you two, just two more. Uh, here's a lesson. He promises and he performs. He's never failed on a promise. 
You hold up the promises of God. You're worried about your financial future and maybe your financial day, today, tomorrow. Hold up Isaiah 46.3. Hold it up to him. The old Puritans used to say, sue God. By that, they meant hold up his word because he cannot deny his word. He cannot deny himself. Jeremiah 1.12, he is watching over his word to perform it. He will come through. He may not come through on your time schedule, but he will come through. Here's the last one. He afflicts and he advances. Job 23. I'll tell you, some of you guys are in the toughest stretch of wilderness that you have ever been in. It's brutal, it's hard, it's deep. Job 23. If anybody knew about adversity and being tested in hardship, it was Job. Uh, 23, 2, he says, His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to a seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Go to verse 8. See, sometimes in the wilderness, you, you, you feel like you're, you've lost your connection with the Lord because you don't, feel, you, don't, you don't sense that he's responding. You see? You say, yeah, I believe in the promises, but I don't see him performing. Well, that's because God's about timing. That's the whole issue of manna, well-timed help. Watch this, verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. I can't see God anywhere in this. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. In other words, this guy is in total, absolute confusion about what's going on in his life with the Lord. But watch this, verse 10. But he knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He afflicts and he advances. When we suffer, David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted because now I keep thy law. We learn the lessons. I love Psalm 23 and I love verse 6. It says, surely goodness and mercy, watch this, watch this, will follow me most of the days of my life. <laughs> That's what it doesn't say. Sometimes we feel that way. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Watch this. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where we're going. And on the way, there'll be manna. On the way, when you need it and all supply lines are cut off, there'll be a well-timed help. Because Jesus is a great Savior. Father, you take care of us in the most unbelievable ways. 
because we've seen your goodness and we've seen your provision in such a way that it just, it, we about broke our jaws. Our mouths were hanging so wide open at your goodness and your favor and your timing. What a great father, what a great savior, what a great redeemer. Yeah, we go through stuff. Yeah, some of us are under tremendous pressure. But your eye is upon us. You know our limits. You know our breaking points. And it's purposeful. Your power is perfected in weakness. So Paul said, I'll glory in my weakness. Thank you that you care and you carry. I pray, Lord, that Thanksgiving would be a special time for every guy in this room. Regardless of circumstances, that we'll make sure in our hearts we're thankful for the manna. And if we're thankful and grateful, that's contagious to those around us. Help us to lead by our attitude. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.